Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. Welcome, welcome. I want to welcome you to A Minute with Coach Riggs, and we have finally made it. We have made it to the top 10 T.R. Miller football teams of all time. We started back in January with the idea, realized that with all the great Miller teams, we would need to do a top 25 list instead of a top 10 list to pay proper respect to all the great football played at T.R. Miller High School through the years. And so we did. Our committee worked through a list, got frustrated, almost quit, but eventually came up with a top 25 list. They asked a lot of questions of me as well as David Jennings, and we answered them as good as we could. And even when they asked for our opinions, we certainly gave our opinions. There are a lot of issues to deal with in trying to be fair to almost 100 years of football teams. Let me just cover some of those issues. First, the football rules were not the same, and the 1990s rule allowing teams to use their hands in blocking really changed the game. Most rules over the past 30 years have been made to make the offense better, and this one sure did. It made it difficult to compare teams as well as stats. Football went from a kind of a defensive game back in the 60s, 70s, 80s to more of an offensive game beginning in the 1990s. Secondly, the city of Bruton, as well as T.R. Miller High School, grew a lot in the 1950s and 60s. When Container Corporation announced in the mid-50s that it would build a paper mill in Bruton, it increased the population of the city as people moved in for jobs. The population increased, the students increased. Third, when full integration of the schools occurred in 1970, suddenly, along with the change in population, T.R. Miller High School was three times as big as it had been 25 years earlier. Graduating classes of 35 were common at Miller in the 1940s. My class in 1964 had 98 people in it. Fourth, integration made the game faster and bigger and the introduction of weight programs in the 1970s and 1980s continued that trend. Fifth, the introduction of playoffs in the mid-60s, the later expansion of the playoffs, and then in 1984, going to six classifications, gave T.R. Miller a chance for playoff games, playoff wins, 
and, of course, state championships, of which there have been six. So comparing teams from the 1940s to teams in the 2000s was really an impossible task. How do you compare a team that went, say, 91 in the 1950s to a team that lost three regular season games but then won a state championship in the 2000s? Eventually, the committee decided to take each team and rank them in their own context. How dominating were they in that season? How good was their competition? The one thing that we eventually discovered that every team had in common was they played either eight, nine, or ten regular season games. So the committee decided that the regular season needed to have some importance. So when the committee started looking at those regular seasons, there were so many teams that had two losses or less, they decided that they would have to do something to eliminate some people. So they decided that they just not would not consider any Miller squads that had lost two or more regular season games unless unless they went on to win the state championship. And when they took all those teams with one or less regular season losses and those that had lost two or more but actually won the championship, that number swelled to about 36 teams. Wow. One stat that they seem to be able to use that seemed to help regardless of the decades was point differential. Point differential meant that you took the average number of points that the team scored, you subtracted the average number of points that they gave up, and that that total was the point differential. And the committee looked at those and said that if you had a point differential of about 20, that was pretty good. So that is the one stat that they've been able to use, along with regular season record, to help them compare teams and eliminate some teams. The committee picked criteria. They made a top 25 list that almost anyone who knows anything about Miller football will disagree with. And that's okay. In fact, that's great. The creation of the top 25 list of all-time Miller teams has introduced and reintroduced names, plays, coaches, and forgotten games to many of the Miller people of all generations and has reminded us that we are all T.R. Miller. And it's a great thing that you don't agree, that you believe that your team that you played on or your team that was in played when you were in high school or your favorite team when you were growing up, that they should be higher. And I think you're right. They should have been higher. From my conversations with David Jennings, he believes that there should be at least 15 teams in the top 10. When we are done, we will do one more episode and we'll listen to some of your disagreements. Then take a look 
at a number of Miller teams, all great in their own right, that didn't make the top 25 list. And I hope you go to the Minute Facebook page. That's a Minute with Coach Riggs Facebook page. And check out the pictures, the newspaper articles, and the video clips celebrating each of these 25 squads. They were warriors, all of them, in their own right and in their own time. One of the things that really blew me away was how many teams we have had that were so close to an undefeated season or so close to a championship appearance or even a championship trophy only to lose a close game to a great opponent. It made me realize just how hard it is to do that and how hard it is and how much work it is to have so many good teams year after year in what looks like a typical small town in South Alabama. But Bruton and T.R. Miller High School are anything but typical. Finally, I want to thank everyone who's been a part of this at all, from the committee members to the guests on the podcast to the great participants in the Miller football program since 1926. And also, thanks to the great administrators, the teachers, the parents, the fans, and the community sport that makes Bruton anything but a typical small town. And a special thanks to David Jennings, who's been a part of several of these. If you will, if you've listened and uh, you've liked this and have enjoyed this, please tell other T.R. Miller people, former players and so forth, about it and uh, let them listen on and let them kind of relive some of these great Miller football teams. Before we go on to the top 10, let's review the list, numbers 25 through 11. Here we go. The number 25 football team of all time, the 1951 T.R. Miller Tigers. They had a record of 91. Their coach was Hal Wide. Uh, they lost the first game and then won nine in a row. Outstanding players, quarterback linebacker, Charles Ray McClellan, halfback, Don Smith, and offensive and defensive tackle, Billy Long. The number 24 team of all time, the 1973 Miller Tigers. These guys were coached by Frank Cotton and had a record of 10-2. and two. They were a state semifinalist and the second Miller team to make the playoffs. Outstanding players, linebacker number 61, Jack Neal. Running back, defensive back, Alan Baker. Tight end, defensive end, Jack Rowell. Guard and linebacker, Charlie Fouts. And quarterback, Doug Norsworthy. The number 23 team of all time, the 2022 Miller Tigers. They had a 10-2 record, and they were coached by Brett Hubbard. Outstanding players, sophomore, running back, linebacker, Miles Johnson. Defensive back, Brother Peace. Offensive lineman, Markel Nicholson. Linebacker, Sam Kelly. This team was outstanding 
against the run, and the defense led the team all year long. The number 22 team of all time, the 1977 Miller Tigers. They had a 91 record, were coached by Frank Cotton. This team lost to Atmore, and the loss to Atmore put them out of the playoffs as they were no runners-up in those, day, those days. Outstanding players on this team. There were a lot of them. Junior linebacker Dow Altman. Junior running back, stand-up nose guard Reggie Brown. Running back, Randall Mallard. And sophomore quarterback, Walter Lewis. The number 21 team of all time. The 1940 T.R. Miller Tigers. They had a record of 7-1-1, and they were coached by Bid McLeod. Now, if you wonder why they're on the list and they lost a game and tied a game and only won seven, here's why. They gave up 14 points in nine games, and that included eight shutouts. Unbelievable. They, their tie game was 0-0. Zero to zero. Outstanding players, running back Hosey Rogers, running back, defensive back and kicker, W.J. Monk, and also running back Marcus Jordan, and tackle Cecil Jones. The number 20 Miller team of all time, the 1964 Miller Tigers, they had an 8-1-1 record in Coach Darrell Fitz's first season. This team changed the way we looked at Miller football after years of unsuccessful teams. Ranked as high as number two, this team and their coach, who, by the way, Daryl Fitz was coach of the year that year, tied Andalusia and would lose seven to nothing to a great Neal team. The outstanding players, fullback linebacker, he was All-State, Sammy Franklin. Tight end, defensive end, Chuck Cunningham. Offensive and defensive lineman, Bill Fowles. And, of course, running back and defensive back, Mike Sasser. The number 19 team of all time. The 2001 T.R. Miller Tigers. They had a record of 12-2, coached by Jamie Riggs. These guys were a state semifinalist. They won all 12 of their games by at least 18 points. Some outstanding players on that team. Offensive lineman, Ty Samuel. Center, Dusty Wilson. Nose guard and fullback, Ladero Wesley. And, of course, quarterback place kicker, Pat Byrne. And the 4A back of the year, Ravon Howard. The number 18 team of all time. The 1986 Miller Tigers. They had a 12-2 record, and they were coached by Mike Sasser. They were a state finalist. Lost the first game to Andalusia. Won 12 games in a row. And then lost in the finals to Litchfield. Outstanding players. The great running back, Joseph Williams. Tight end, Jeffrey Hall. Linebacker, Roger McClellan, who had a great senior year. Quarterback, Keith Megginson. And offensive lineman, Robert McClellan and Thad Betts. The number 17 team of all time. 
1996 Miller Tigers. These guys had a record of 13-2. and Coached by Jamie Riggs, they were a state finalist, lost in this first Super 6 championships to Fayette County. These guys scored a school record at the time, 517 points, but will be remembered for their semifinal win versus W.S. Neal after having lost to them in the regular season. The great players. Offensive lineman Michael Bell, fullback and linebacker Antonio Johnson, defensive lineman Jason Jones, punter and kicker Jeff King, and, of course, running back Ashley Kaiser. The number 16 team of all time, the 1984 Miller Tigers, 12-3, and coached by Mike Sasser. They were the 4A state champions, Miller's second state championship team. They won that championship in one of Miller's greatest games, a 20-18 victory, come from behind victory, over Cherokee County on a cold night in center Alabama. The great players, linebacker Michael Herbert, offensive lineman Bart Teal, running back Joseph Williams, he was a sophomore then, and the great defensive end, Dwayne Hammock. Wide receiver James Weaver who caught the famous pass from quarterback Kevin Ladnier, and, of course, linebacker Roger Jones. The number 15 T.R. Miller team of all time, the 2002 Miller Tigers, 11-3 record, coached by Jamie Riggs, the 3A state champions. They dominated the state championship game with a 38-6 win over Colbert County. The great players. Quarterback Brad Lanham, who is the state championship game MVP, throwing for three touchdowns. Linebacker, fullback, Quentin Galloway, who had a great playoff run. Linebacker, Dominic Johnson. Nose guard, Webster Bay, who was almost unblockable in the playoffs. And wide receiver, Brent Salter. The number 14 team of all time, the 2004 T.R. Miller Tigers. They had a record of 12-1, and coached by Jamie Riggs. The 2004 Tigers are one of 10 T.R. Miller teams to go undefeated in the regular season. They were a state semifinalist, losing in the state semifinals to eventual champion Aniana. This team had a solid defense but a great passing attack. The great players, wide receiver Jacob Salter, linebacker Tyler Sheehan, offensive lineman Tyler Chapman, wide receiver defensive back Michael Riggs, and wide receiver defensive back kick returner Antonio Gomez, and of course quarterback Jordan Colley. The number 13 team of all time, the 1983 Miller Tigers, they had a 91 record, Coached by Mike Sasser, they lost to eventual state champion Atmore, but because we were in the same area at the time and only the champion went, did not make the playoffs. This was the last year 
of the four classifications. And there are a lot of people that believe this is the best team of the 1980s. Certainly the committee saw it that way. The great players, tight end Lee Mark Sellers, running back Mitch Lewis, and running back Steve Lane. Defensive back John Brown, he was a good one. Linebacker George Monroe. Quarterback Jeff Chamberlain. And defensive back Robbie Cotton. The number 12 team of all time, the 1978 Miller Tigers. They had a 10-2 record. They were coached by Frank Cotton. This team was great on defense, shutting out five opponents. The great players, linebacker Dow Altman, running back Reggie Brown, quarterback Walter Lewis, linebacker Scott Huff, tackle Ronnie Grady, defensive lineman Dennis Fulmer, and outside linebacker Chris Griffin. And the number 11 team of all time, the 2008 T.R. Miller Tigers. They had a record of 13-1, coached by Jamie Riggs, another of the T.R. Miller football teams to go undefeated. There's only 10 of them in the regular season. Had 13 wins in a row, right, before losing in the state semifinals in one of the great, great football games ever played in Bruton to uh, Cordova. They scored 535 points, and that is second all time. The great players, offensive lineman Mabry Cook, tight end linebacker Cody Swain, Running back, Cortez Banks. Wide receiver, Therese Lane. Defensive lineman, John Tay Brown. Outside linebacker, John Matthew. And sophomore quarterback, Will Riggs. And that's the list from number 25 on to number 11. And so we are now ready to go to the number 10 T.R. Miller football team of all time. And they are the 1946 Miller Tigers. Before we talk about the 46 squad, let's take a look back at a little bit at maybe what life was like in Bruton, Alabama in 1946. When the season started, it was a little more than a year after the end of World War II. Servicemen were returning. They were looking for jobs. Unemployment was at 3%. The nation was concerned about the Soviet Union and communism, and the Cold War had begun. A gallon of gas in Bruton cost you 21 cents. Sirloin steak, 33 cents a pound. Many of the wartime restrictions were lifted and suddenly you could get consumer goods again. You could buy rubber tires, radios, and washing machines. A new auto was still kind of hard to find. It was kind of hard to find a new car. But you could place your order with JM Motors in Bruton for a new 1946 Buick for about $2,000. Movies were popular. And the Ritz Theater in Bruton 
We're showing movies seven days a week and a double feature on Saturday. Admission, 35 cents for adults, 10 cents for students. There were plenty of stores in Bruton where you could buy clothes. Some of you older ones will remember some of these stores. The Fair Store, Everages, Robbins and McGowan's, Hutto's, the Cedar Creek Store, among others. T.R. Miller Mill Company was still the leading employer in Bruton. Average yearly income in America in 1946, $2,600 a year. TV stations were springing up in the big cities. TV had started to be developed right before the war got started, and it got put off on hold there during the war. But after the war, TV stations were springing up in the east and in Los Angeles in the west, and a new TV would cost you somewhere around $200 or more. The return of servicemen produced super college football teams in 1946. Notre Dame won the national championship that fall, and in October, they tied 1944 and 45 national champion Army in a classic zero-to-zero tie at Yankee Stadium. Army would finish at number two behind Notre Dame's number one. Georgia had an outstanding year, finishing at number three. Overall, they would end up going, counting their bowl game, 11-0. They won the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans over a very good North Carolina team. One of North Carolina's star players in 1946 was fullback Hosey Rogers of Bruton, Alabama, and T.R. Miller, who had decided to play with the Tar Heels after the war, where he was stationed during the war, instead of returning to the University of Alabama, where he had played in 1942. Okay, let's look at the 46 team. Why are they the number 10 team of all time? They had a record of eight wins, no losses, and one tie. They were coached by Hal White in his second year. Tom McGilberry was the line coach. This was a relatively small team that listed no players over 180 pounds and whose offensive line averaged about 160 but they were extremely skilled. The Tigers had about 25 players, and as a general rule, they played about 16 to 17 on a regular basis, most everybody playing on both sides of the ball. This team had four returning lettermen in the line that were important to their success. Leon Martin, Pete Bryant, Jack Long, who was particularly an outstanding defender, and Bernard Russell. This team is significant in T.R. Miller football history for several reasons. Number one, they are one of 10 Miller teams to go undefeated in the regular season. Number two, this team also had some former servicemen on their team. Joe Parker, Dick Jernigan, who was an outstanding end, and fullback Scotty Byrne. They had all left high school to join the service before graduating. 
and were allowed to return to school and to play ball, to play out their eligibility, some of them at 20 and 21 years of age. Number three, this team gave up only 20 points on the season, never more than seven in a game, and average giving up 2.2 per contest. Four, they played their first game ever versus W.S. Neal on November 22nd, 1946, beating the Eagles 25 to nothing at Rotary Field in Brute. And finally, this team played in two of the biggest games ever in the 20-year history of the school in Game 8 and Game 9. Game 8, they played against an undefeated Atmore team. Two undefeated teams playing in the next to last game of the year. And, of course, in Game 9, the first game ever against Neal. Their scoring average, they averaged scoring 25 points per game. They gave up 2.2, which meant their scoring differential was 22.8, which is truly outstanding. Anything around 20 is good, and if you're over 20, that's outstanding. This Miller team operated out of the T formation, and T formation meaning that the center was up on the quarterback. He wasn't in a shotgun position taking the snap. This team also had alternating quarterbacks. Philip Bradley was a senior and had been the returning starter from the year before. But Coach White also chose to play Floyd Jernigan. But the backs were the real stars of this team. Left halfback and kick returner and scat back Ben Martin. Small but extremely skilled and, and, and speedy. Right halfback Paul Strickland, who led the team in scoring. And fullback Scotty Byrne. Joe Parker played in and later on in the year fullback as well. This Miller team could throw the ball. Not only Bradley and Journey get at quarterback, but Scotty Byrne was a star on halfback passes. The top receiver was in Dick Jernigan, who was also an outstanding defensive end. The quarterback was under the center in the tee, handing off to the fullback on off-tackle plays and then pulling the ball out and running option play. The halfbacks ran sweeps and dives and caught passes out of the backfield. The end stayed in tight most of the time, but could split out on occasions. The fullback also would run the ball on trap plays. The offense also allowed the halfbacks to align near the line of scrimmage in wing sets. The halfback passes came off of sweeps to either the fullbacks or the halfbacks. The T was popular in college and high school football in the 1940s and 1950s. The team played their games at Rotary Field, usually at 8 o'clock, and were still wearing maroon jerseys in those days. The starting lineup for the first game. The left end was Dick Journey. 
The left tackle was Grub Jernigan. The, the also playing left tackle was Earl Wilson. The left guard was Jack Long. The center was Robert Taylor. The right guard, Bernard Russell. The right tackle was Pete Bryant and Colbert Douglas. The right end was Leon Martin, who would later go and play some center. Bradley and Floyd Jernigan were the quarterbacks. And as we said before, burn the fullback, the left half being Martin, and the right half, Paul Strickland. Let's talk about the season. First game of the year was against Century. It was played on September 20th, 1946. The Tigers won 40 to nothing. 40 was a lot of points to score in 1946. After a scoreless first quarter, Paul Strickland scored from two yards out for the first touchdown of the season. Later in the second quarter, Scotty Byrne hit Ben Martin on a halfback pass to set up his own two-yard run to give Miller a 14-0 halftime lead. Byrne continued to be a thorn in the side of Century, hitting Dick Jernigan with a 38-yard touchdown pass, and Strickland ran one in from the two after a fumble recovery for a 28-0 third-quarter lead. In the fourth quarter, Ben Martin took over with a short touchdown run and a 60-yard interception return for a touchdown to make the final score 40 to nothing. Second game of the season was played on September 27, 1946, and it was a 19-0 win over Baymanette. A late afternoon, heavy rain made for a flooded field, but Miller prevailed over Baymanette. Strickland scored on a reverse play from 11 yards out before Bradley hit star in Dick Jernigan on a fourth down with a 25-yard touchdown pass. Scotty Byrne hit Ben Martin on a halfback pass to set up a second-half touchdown run by Martin. The defense recorded its second straight shutout, and Miller had a 19-0 win making their record 2-0. Game 3 on October 4, 1946, T.R. Miller staked Andalusia a 7-0 lead before Ben Martin ran past the Bulldogs into submission in Bruton, leading the Tigers to a 19-7 win. Martin tied the game on a 78-yard run, breaking off right tackle behind solid blocking, cutting back to the left, and then sprinting down the left sideline for a touchdown. Then the Tigers tried a little razzle-dazzle. Philip Bradley passed to Joe Parker, who lateraled to Martin for a 25-yard gain. Then Floyd Jernigan passed to Dick Jernigan, who lateraled again to Martin, setting up a four-yard jump pass from Jernigan to Jernigan. A fourth-quarter fumble recovery set up the final Miller touchdown. The defense was stellar again, giving up only three first downs to Andalusia. Game four, on October 11, 1946, Miller beat a relatively poor McCullough team 31 to nothing behind Paul Strickland's four touchdowns, giving the Tigers a 4-0 record. Game five was on October 18, 1946. The Tigers beat a tough Greenville squad 13-7 on the road. The Miller faithful were very unhappy with the, quote, local officials, unquote, 
who called 95 yards of penalties on the Tigers and called back three long Miller plays. The Tigers led at halftime on a burn to Ben Martin touchdown pass, 7-0. The second score was all Philip Bradley. He returned the second half kickoff 54 yards and then tossed a 14-yard touchdown pass to Dick Jernigan to give Miller a 13-0 lead. The Miller defense was great again, stopping Greenville with a second-half goal-line stand, denying the opponents three times inside the one-yard line. Greenville scored a late touchdown to make the final 14-6. Quarterback Floyd Jernigan injured his shoulder and would be out for a couple of weeks. Game 6, October 24th. 1946, Miller easily defeated Flomerton 31 to nothing in a game marred by tempers and fights among the players and conflicts even after the game. Miller scored in every quarter in this Thursday night affair to go 6-0 and on the season. But the Tigers suffered a devastating injury losing senior scat back Ben Martin to a fractured vertebrae for the season. Game 7, November 1st, 1946. It was homecoming at T.R. Miller, and the Tigers whooped up on Georgiana 39 to nothing. Paul Strickland had four touchdown runs, one a 70-yarder. Scotty Byrne hit Dick Jernigan with another touchdown pass, and then ran one in himself for 20, from 22 yards. The win gave Miller a record of 7-0, setting up the two biggest games of the year. Game 8, November 8th, 1946, in a classic game. T.R. Miller traveled to Atmore to play a much larger, but likewise undefeated and powerful Blue Devil squad. Miller had given up only 13 points on the season, while Atmore had surrendered only 20 points. And the Blue Devils had wins over Tate of Pensacola, Foley, and Fairhope. The largest crowd ever to see a football game in Atmore. Well over 3,000 people crowded in to see the contest on a clear but cool night for football. Atmore scored first on a 62-yard run by DeWitt Bell. After an exchange of punts, Miller got a drive going with Scotty Byrne ripping off runs of 7, 8, and 18 yards. Bradley threw a jump pass to Strickland to get the ball to the one-yard line, and Joe Parker, who had been moved to in the backfield from end after the Martin injury, ran it in from there. Scotty Byrne kicked the all-important PAT to knock the score at 7-7 seven to seven at halftime. Both teams had scoring opportunities in the second half, but lost those due to turnovers. The Miller defense held courageously versus the bigger Blue Devils in the second half, led by lineman Jack Long, who spent much of the second half in the Atmore backfield. The final gun sounded with Atmore 
at the Miller 15-yard line. The final, 7-7. Seven to seven. There was only one penalty called in the entire game. Atmore would end the season with a record of eight wins, no losses, and one tie, the same as T.R. Miller. And by the way, a note about the Atmore game. The Atmore coach before the game had accused Miller of playing ineligible players. And after a district board meeting, tackle Culvert Douglas, who had played at Neal in 1945, was declared ineligible. Miller coach Hal White suggested that Atmore had some ineligible players as well, and two Blue Devils were declared ineligible to play in the big game. Game nine, T.R. Miller versus W.S. Neal for the first time ever. The Tigers had originally scheduled a game with Evergreen to finish the season. A group of community leaders were searching for a fundraising effort to benefit the Escambia County Hospital for the purchase of some much-needed new medical equipment. They came up with the idea of a first-ever Miller versus Neal football game with all of the proceeds going to the hospital. After some negotiations with the local school boards, the details of the game were worked out. In a spirit of cooperation that we would never see today, Evergreen agreed to drop their contract with Miller and play Flomerton, who was Neal's final opponent. And Flomerton agreed to drop their contract with Neal and to play Evergreen. The Miller-Neal game was set for Friday, November 22nd at Rotary Field in Bruton. And in another amazing agreement of cooperation, the schools agreed to give all the proceeds to the hospital and take none themselves. Ticket prices were raised from a normal 60 cents to $1 and were sold in advance. They also moved some of the bleachers from W.S. Neal to help accommodate what they knew would be a very large crowd. November 22, 1946 was a very cold night in Brute with a chilly wind. The cold and the hard hitting between the two squads caused several turnovers in the game. Miller's Leon Martin, one of the team's best defensive players, was out with an infected leg. For Neal, runner James Burgess was out with a broken hand, and guard Pat Moore was out with a neck injury. After swapping first quarter fumbles, Neal's Hillary Grice punted Miller deep to their own seven-yard line. Two plays later, Scotty Burns scored the first touchdown in the history of the Miller-Neal rivalry. He circled the defense on an end-around play for 90 yards and a touchdown behind beautiful blocking. After stopping the Neal drive at the Miller 20, the Tigers used back-to-back -back reverse plays to get the ball to the Neal 11. Two plays later, Philip Bradley ran a quarterback sneak for the touchdown to give Miller a 13-0 lead. Now, Neal had a chance to score just before halftime when they recovered a Tiger fumble deep in Miller territory. But the Miller defense rose up as they had all season, forcing a Neal fumble at the 8-yard line to halt the threat. 
Miller iced the game in the fourth quarter with a Floyd Jernigan quarterback sneak and a Scotty Burns seven-yard touchdown run to make the final 25 to nothing. It was the 1946 team's sixth shutout in nine games. The attendance was estimated at well over 1,000 for the game. It was a great season. On Friday, December 6, 1946, the Miller football team was honored with a banquet at the school auditorium. The food was prepared by volunteers of the girls' home ec department. Coach White said at the banquet that he thought that the team would probably lose five games or so before the season, but that the credit would have to go to the steady line performance, particularly on defense, to turn the tide for his Miller team. They turned in the finest effort seen on any football field this season, said Coach White. The senior players spoke briefly about the undefeated campaign. Ben Martin, Philip Bradley, Dick Jernigan, Ralph Smith, Jack Long, Scotty Byrne, Pete Bryant, Joe Parker, Lum Jernigan, and Paul Strickland. A film of the 1946 Rose Bowl featuring the Alabama Crimson Tide was shown to the crowd as well. Afterward, the team was treated to a dance in the school auditorium. The success of the 46 team was really no surprise. This was the third excellent football season in a row for the Miller Tigers. The 1944 team had a record of 7-1-1, one uh, having lost to Greenville and having tied Atmore 0-0. Zero zero. The 1945 squad had a record of 7-2, and two, the only blemishes being a 14-6 loss to Andalusia and a 14-13 loss to Atmore. Miller expected to be great in 1946 and delivered in every way. The 1947 team would also be outstanding. They went 8-1-1 one one with a loss to Atmore and a tie with Evergreen, but also had a 13-6 win over Neal. And in 1948, the Tigers would win seven games again, including a third straight victory over Neal by a score of 19-6. From November 16, 1945 through October 31, 1947, T.R. Miller would play 17 straight games without a loss. Truly, the 1940s was a great decade of Miller football. And T.R. Miller coach Hal White, well, he was just in his second season in 1946, but he would spend nine years as the football, baseball, and basketball head coaches at T.R. Miller. This would include the 1952 Class A State Basketball Championship. In 1953, Miller traveled down to Fort Walton Beach to play Choctahatchee High School. They won that game in 1953 by a score of 26 to 19. Apparently, Choctahatchee was impressed. In fact, they were so impressed that they offered Coach White their head coaching job in May of 1954, coaching both football and basketball. Coach White 
accepted the job and was replaced by Bob Riley. One stat about Coach Hal White. He is the third winningest football coach ever at T.R. Miller with 60 wins just slightly behind the 62 wins of Coach Frank Cotton. The number 10 football team of all time at T.R. Miller, the 1946 Miller Tigers. Okay, and, and I'm happy to have with me today Brad Byrne, Judge Brad Byrne, who, uh, whose dad, Scotty Byrne, played on the 1946 team. And Brad, I appreciate you joining us and doing this. Glad to be with you. It's uh, it's really nice that you're doing this. All right, so uh, let's uh, let's kind of go back um, and talk about your dad's life a little bit because it's really fascinating. And uh, originally, uh, they were living in Atmore and moved to Bruton. Is that right? That's true. When uh, his dad got elected to the office of sheriff slash tax tax collector, uh, they moved to Bruton. So so sheriff and tax collector was one job. Yeah, at one time it was, and then I think they separated it, and later he was just tax collector, but uh, I think they were together at one time. That's amazing. (laughs) So one of the things we kind of talk about as we go along here is how things have changed since 1946, and certainly uh, that would have been been one of them. So uh, December 1941, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, the war starts. Your dad's in about the ninth grade there, but a couple of years later, we're a couple of years into the war, or at least about a year and a half into it anyway, he turned 17 years old and decided that he wanted to go into the service. So tell that story. Yeah, he was only 17, so he and his dad, I think he got his dad to kind of uh, tell a fib about his birthday. They listed his birthday as April the 30th, 1925 when actually he was born june the 30th 1926 so he was just 17 years old but i guess you know he he was very persuasive when he wanted to be so i guess he talked his dad into it and his dad fought in world war one so yeah i don't know if i could do that you know um but he did and so he went off to basic training in june of uh 1943 wow you know, just one of the ways that things have changed, you know, the idea today of a a parent uh, okaying for their 17-year-old son to go to war um, is, is almost unthinkable today. But it was a different world in 1946. Absolutely. And, you know, the whole country, you know, had to be kind of mobilized and and I'm sure my dad didn't want to be left, you know, waiting. He wanted to get out there and help any way he could. So, like I said, he could be very persuasive. And I'm sure he told dad, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. You know, what's another year going to matter? So, uh, yeah, it, it is a different uh, mindset. You know, the country had been attacked by the Japanese and Germany had declared war on America. So it it, it took everybody and uh it always amazes me, Jamie, about the level of sacrifice that, that that generation gave to get us through World War II. Well, um, so tell us a little bit about, um, uh, he went to basic training in South Carolina. Tell us 
about his war experience in Europe. Okay. Uh, well, he initially was sent over to North Africa. It's kind of a staging area. I think they'd already pretty much defeated Rommel. But anyway, then from North Africa, he got sent to Italy. And he was in the 88th Division, and he was in a unit that was in charge of anti-tank. It was an anti-tank unit, and uh, later he was trained to clear mines. But, uh, yeah, and it's kind of ironic. His division, their nickname was the Blue Devils. (laughs) (laughs) Devils, but, uh, yeah, that was his division's nickname. And um, so he goes over, his young guy gets over there, and... um, first part of 44 and it begins that long uh, arduous um, task of getting the Germans out of Italy and um, so he uh, he was in several major battles in that conflict he, he earned his combat infantryman badge and a purple heart he, he was wounded by artillery or mortar got some shrapnel and he got three bronze battle stars so wow. he, he was in the thick of it and he was just a young guy too it's uh, it's always amazed me some of the german soldiers that they were fighting against were some of the best and 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 best soldiers that germany had at the time absolutely and a lot of the paratroopers and guys that maybe had fought on the you know the campaigns for Germany, and they they were battle hardened, so they they were up against some of the best. And it was a very mountainous terrain, and it was, so it was difficult to advance. And uh, the weather was always an issue with rain and mud and cold. So uh, yeah, I can remember he told me a story about one time they were guarding a little ammo dump, and they couldn't come out during the day because there was a German sniper nearby. So they had to stay in their foxhole by this uh, ammo dump. And then they could only come out at night to relieve themselves. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> stuff like that that you just uh, – it's just hard to comprehend. And there was another story where he was a little bit late getting back to his unit after he was granted a little bit of a leave, and he happened to come across some German soldiers who were surrendering. And so he was able to take them in. So that kind of took the heat off of him for being late. So – he served like 20 or 21 months of, of active duty over there. Brad, did he talk about this very much? Not a lot. He didn't talk about it very much. Um, he told me, you know, just very little about it and the fact that he got wounded. And um, he did tell me one time that he, uh, he told my brother and I that, that he was, they trained him to clear mines while he was in Italy. And, uh, he was in the process of clearing one and he said it should have gone off, but evidently some dirt or something had gotten into the firing mechanism and prevented it from going off. So yeah, that was a little bit harrowing to hear that story about how close he came to uh, possibly not making it back home. Wow. Well, the, the war in Europe ends in um, May of 45 and by, by late August, of 1945 he's actually back in Bruton uh just in time when he left he still had two years of high school left to do and so he he gets back just in time to start uh school and football practice uh in the uh, fall of 1945 so the years he was fighting he was 17 and 18 years old and he comes back he's 
uh, not only going to school, but he's playing athletics at basically ages 19 and 20. And uh, But there were a lot of guys doing that in those days that had joined the service before they got through with high school and then came back and finished high school. So um, talk a little bit about just his – he was a great athlete, yet when he first came back, um, he's a he's a 19-year-old guy uh, who's been in combat playing against 15, 16-year-old kids. Yeah, can you imagine that? You know, <laughs> Uh, battle-hardened veterans who, you know, come back home to finish high school, that would be pretty daunting. That's got would be pretty intimidating. But, uh, yeah, he did that, and um, he was just, I guess, a regular student maybe, but uh, he uh, he loved sports and he, he loved to compete, so he played them all once he got back, and I'm sure he had missed not being able to play while he was overseas. Um, but he... Yeah, he got right back into the swing of things. Um, but but was always a great athlete. Played uh, in those days, you know, it was all men's men's sports. It's uh, football, baseball, and basketball. He, he played all three of them, and in particular, as good as he was, he was particularly good in baseball, and was a really an outstanding uh, a pitcher in baseball. Yeah, he was. That was that was probably the thing that he excelled at the most that and golf um but you know he came back in um, 45 when he returned to school and i think um you know uh i know in 46 he had a one hitter versus georgiana and i think the story i'm told is the first batter got a hit maybe because my my dad wasn't really as sharp as he should have been he may have had an adult beverage before the game <laughs> At the hit, he shut him out. Nobody, there were no other Georgiana. And then in uh, 47, I believe he had back-to-back no-hitters versus Neal. And um, he, he just, he was a really good pitcher. I read somewhere where they said uh, it was kind of a description of his pitching style and said he had a medium fastball, but a lot of off-speed stuff and breaking balls. So he was probably a, uh, what you'd call a, a junk pitcher, kind of a Greg Maddox style. He just kept you guessing the whole time. I know uh, his his coach was uh, Hal White, of course, and who coached everything then. And I can tell you from just my coaching experience, if if you had pitched like a perfect game against Neil this week and we played Neil again next week, I'm pitching him again too. So I, yeah. <laughs> I, I understand that. At, at, that absolutely and everything. So, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, his football. Um, they had a good team in 45 the first year he came back. Uh, only lost uh, two games, and they were to uh, to Atmore and Andalusia, who I think Andalusia lost one game that year in 45, and uh, Atmore was undefeated. Atmore was just great in those days. And then in 46, uh, this is the team we've been talking about here. They went undefeated. Tied at more seven to seven, and uh, your dad played basically fullback in the T formation, but they let him throw the ball some and and was and was kicker. But um, the other thing about the forty six team we talked about is first team uh, to play W S Neal. Your dad scored the first touchdown in the history of the um, series on a ninety yard run, but that's not the whole story about the ninety yard run. 
No, the the other part of that story was that as he broke loose, broke free, and going down the sidelines in front of the Neil stands, he he kind of gave him a wave. He started waving at him. <laughs> he, he was the type later on in life. He didn't like hot dogging, but there he was being a big old hot dog himself. But yeah, he, and my uncle, who was the quarterback, Philip Bradley, he said he blocked two people on that play to, so Scotty could get loose, you know. And, <laughs> feel, uh, you know, unmolested and, uh, have a free run. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, I thought that was always kind of a, a humorous thing that he was kind of waving at the Neil stands. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. I tell you, I, I um, I, I've had, I, I've had some folks do some things in the Neil game. I hadn't had them wave at the stands, but, uh, I do remember, I do remember one year we, we went down the same Neil sideline and scored on a long screen pass and, Richard Rogers was playing, and Richard uh, went down the sideline shooting his shooting his guns. You know, he used to shoot the guns, he's shooting his guns at the Neil fans down there. And I think we got a penalty for that one that night. I don't, I don't know if Scotty came out okay or not, but I think we got a penalty. I don't think he did. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if he even threw a flag for that back then. Unusual, I guess. Oh goodness! Oh goodness! Well. He he graduates from high school in nineteen May of nineteen forty seven, so like a month later he he turned twenty one years old, and yeah. and so but if I'm not mistaken, it's not long after that that he and your mother get married. Yeah, they got married in July of forty seven, yeah. and um, also I think during this time he started uh, started playing with the Enterprise baseball team. Um, the Bowl Weevils. So I think in '48 and '49 he played for them, and um, and yeah, he was married. And then my brother was born in '48. So, uh, but the, the other thing that I, I've always, you know, about my dad, his his mother and father died. Um, his mother died well uh, in 1948, and his dad died in 1949. So mm. he was still in his 20s, and that, that's mighty awful. I mean, mighty young age to um, to have to lose both of your parents pretty close together and within a year or so. And um, but he persevered. Well, no, no, no doubt about that, he did that. And again, he, he's pitching that semi-pro baseball. I don't know. I'm assuming at some point in time that that somehow they paid on some in those days. They would have had to. Yeah, I think they did. They paid him a little bit, and probably wasn't much. But uh, yeah, he got. A little bit of money, I think. And we played our games at Lyles Park, which was downtown, or right out of town, right right over there by the creek, I believe. Yeah, down there where Attico is now, or it's Grady, uh, the Ironworks, um, right down there. Because I remember it very vaguely when I was a kid. It was still there, and it was just one of your old wooden baseball parks, wooden stands, and everything. And that's where they played. In fact, he was actually a bat boy for that team when he was about 11 years old because I've seen a picture of that. He, oh, really? Yeah, he was a bat boy. One of the players was had his arm around him, and they were just sitting on the bench. And um, So, he, yeah, that that was when baseball was king, you know, James. Oh, yeah. Baseball was big back then. Uh, they did, and that was a pretty good league they had. They had teams all the way from Dothan all the way across, I think, like, Geneva and Andalusia, I think even Op had a team for a while there, Enterprise had teams. And so uh, so that was a big deal in those days. That's why, you know, over there like at Andalusia football stadium, you always had that, that covered area over there because they yeah. used to play on that field uh, over there where the football field is. 
Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So he gets married. Um, he he's working. He's playing uh, a semi-pro baseball. Then in the early fifties, he decides and ends up going to Southern Mississippi. So explain a little bit about his his time at Southern Mississippi. Yeah, he. Um, I'm not sure. I asked my brother how he wound up there, whether they contacted him or he contacted them, but I'm, we're not really sure. But, yeah, he goes to Southern Mississippi Southern College back then in 1951. You know, he, he, he was going to play baseball and golf and then actually saw a roster from the spring game of that year where he was listed on the football roster on the, for the spring game. And I'm going, I didn't even know that. I don't think he lasted very long because he didn't weigh a whole lot. He was pretty thin back then. So yeah. he must have gave it a try in the spring. But um, after that, focused mainly or solely on uh, baseball and golf. And um, his freshman year in 51, he uh, – he was three and zero, and he had a one point four three ERA. So he he started off pretty good. That, that's good in any league, right there. Yeah, and he managed the golf course over there. He uh, they had a little living quarters there at the golf course, which was just a little nine hole course. And so he managed that and uh, lived there with my mother and my brother, and um, played golf and baseball. <laughs> Wow, and uh, and he even played uh, uh, played some semi pro baseball over in Hattiesburg, I think. Yes, he did. He played. Um, you know, I've read articles. Evidently, they had lots of teams back then. They had different mm-hmm. all star teams, and they had the semi pro teams. So they were playing a lot of baseball, and he played with a lot of different people. Um, and found out he actually played with my wife's uncle, who went on to play for the Toledo Mud Hens. Oh, really? AAA. Yeah, we didn't know it at the time when we met, but yeah, they played together, and then he played with the two guys at Southern that wound up in the major leagues, Bubba Phillips and uh, Jim Davenport. And Davenport managed the uh, San Francisco Giants yeah. for a while. And um, but anyway, yeah, he played with a lot of good baseball players, and he he, he um, I, I don't know if I've told you this, but they, they were playing a semi-pro game down in Louisiana, and they had to call the game because of mosquitoes. There were just so many mosquitoes they couldn't play the game. <laughs> it was a no-go. Let, let me tell you, I I, um, I attended some uh, Babe Ruth games over there in East Brute about 15 or 20 years ago that they should have called for mosquitoes, i tell you that. But that's the first one I've ever heard uh, yep. of, of that happening. <laughs> yeah, true story. So one thing I had forgotten is that when your dad came back and after graduating and all that kind of stuff, he decided to uh, uh, he used the GI Bill to learn to fly. Is that correct? Yeah, he took some flying lessons down at Canoe. There was a little field there called Bachelor Field, and I imagine it was like a J, a Cub, Piper Cub, something like that, J3, that he took flying lessons in it. And, and, um, and then later uh, on the GI Bill, I think he actually taught uh, several years uh, after he got back from Southern the, uh, on the he taught uh, soldiers, you know, who were using their GI Bill, and I'm not sure what he taught, but he, he actually taught for a little while. And, wow, uh, he was real good with math and numbers. So I don't know if he taught math or something else, but uh, he was really good with numbers. Wow, that's something. So, some point in time down there in the mid 50s and all, they come back to Bruton. 
And uh, after working around, he decides he's going to run for sheriff of Escambia County. So tell us about the election a little and, and, and about his time as sheriff. Yeah, um, it was, a. you know, his father had been in politics, so I guess he thought he would give it a try. And uh, so I, I remember the race, uh, even though I was pretty young, 58, so I was just four years old, but um uh, he ran against a guy named Otis Emmons, and uh, it was close. I think the first time around, Daddy did not get it. Neither one got enough votes to um, to win, so then they had a runoff, and Daddy won in the runoff. And it, but it was close, and uh, so he becomes sheriff in '58. And uh, you know, back then sheriffs were on the fee system; they didn't get a salary. They had to they got a fee for papers that they served. You know, and, and criminal cases and civil cases and that sort of thing. And so he had to pretty much pay most of his expenses out of the money he made from those fees. So it, it was, uh, uh, I can remember, it was some lean times, but uh, we, we got by, we had everything we needed. So uh, so he served from 58 to 82, 83, January of 83, I guess. And uh, that's when he left office. So he had a nice uh, long time that he served as sheriff and uh, you know he was his, his philosophy was more of trying to help people than, than to lock them up so I mean he would lock them up if they had to be but most of the time he was trying to help people and he didn't carry a gun never carried a gun so I, I just you know he was a lot like Andy Griffith in a way <laughs> as far as Mayberry um, but it was a different time then yeah he only had like uh, four or five deputies besides him, maybe maybe six, and um, you know, covered the whole county. And um, but it was a different time, and uh, so um, yeah, I, I just uh, we used to get a lot of calls at home. It was you know they wanted the sheriff, they'd call you at home. So I I got I answered the phone many times, people calling, needing to see talk to the sheriff. So uh, yeah, he didn't get a lot of. Uh, time away from the office it was it was pretty much a full-time job yeah I, I i can understand i know he was also a uh a big supporter of the um boys and girls ranch yeah yeah he did he and a lot of folks from the bruton area and i know uh, supported it and helped him with that but yeah he did support that for kids that you know uh, needed a place that um because of their family situation and big supporter of that um and I think there was a maybe a building or something named the Scambia Room or the Scambia Building or something based upon all the support that he was able to bring together from the people in Scambia County. The idea that he, I guess he was he was elected like six times. The idea that you could run six times as sheriff and get elected is just amazing to me. Because surely you would make enough people mad <laughs> being <laughs> sheriff. That would be hard to get reelected constantly. Yeah, and he he never had he always had opposition. He never went in without opposition, so he had to run every time. Every time it was every four years that he had to run, and uh, so he had to gear up for that and campaign. And I did it one time, and I tell you, that's the only that that was enough for me. But I can't imagine doing it uh, six times. But uh, how how yeah. did your how did your mother handle all that? Well, uh, it was stressful, um, especially, you know, if you find out somebody, you know, or one of your friends may be thinking of voting for somebody else, you know, yeah. or, you know, that sort of thing. 
but she she did pretty well. I know one year she wrote a poem for Daddy that we put in the paper. It was just a little thing about you know why he should be reelected, and it was a, it was a poem. So I mean, she did what she could to help him and uh, support him um, in 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 the campaigns, and um, so. But it, it was uh, it, every every four years we had to do it. Wow. I would have hated to have to run for football coach every four years. I can tell you that that would have been a tough that would have been a tough gig. I can tell you. Yeah, that's what I tell people. I say, how would you like to every four years have to run for your job or whatever? <laughs> oh. about, you know, the general public as to whether you're doing a good job or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's that'll give everybody something to think about right there. And and then finally in 1971. He was elected to the Southern Mississippi um, Athletic Hall of Fame, which is a, truly a great honor. Yeah, he, he is the first and maybe the only now, but I know he was the first to be inducted for two different sports. He was inducted for golf and baseball. And, yeah, I remember going to that ceremony, and it was an honor. Um, for, and he was he, – he, he wasn't um, – person to get all emotional about stuff but i knew he was very moved by that it meant a lot to him uh to receive that honor um in in 1971 you know he had he had i think he had a really good experience at southern yeah and uh, met a lot of good people and and uh, was able to flourish there and and excel in those sports so um he had a lot of good memories from there well and it had to be kind of special to him uh and um in, in the early 70s there, you uh, graduated in 1972 and signed a football scholarship with uh, Southern Miss and went over there and uh, played in the early and mid-70s. I know that had to be special to him. Oh, yeah, it was. And uh, I, I had a professor that had taught my dad, and uh, there were a lot. And some of the people in the athletic department knew him and had been there when he was there. It was, it was special to me, and it was kind of by luck that I got there. The coach, they were actually looking at somebody from Neal. And bring uh, and uh, said, "Who is that guy?" And then they, somebody told him who it was, and he said, "Well, I know his dad." So anyway, that was how I got recruited to go there, and I'm glad I did because I had a great four years there, and and uh, I got to catch punts from Ray Guy. Yeah, punter to ever play the game, and I, I was trying to show him I could catch punts, and I said, "Well, if I can catch his, I, that'll, that'll pretty much demonstrate that." So, made that a point to do that and i met my wife there so it's um yeah been good to to our family well i tell you that's uh that's something your dad just had he he um was a lifelong golfer and i I know it seemed like i just every tournament i ever heard of that they played anywhere here around bruton uh he was right in the middle of it oh yeah he loved he loved to compete and he loved golf um in fact, I think when he was a young boy, uh, there was a fellow in Bruton. They, they would go play a little golf before school, I think, even, I'd heard. He'd pick him up and they'd go play footballs. <laughs> uh, but he always loved golf. He, he loved the, the competition. The thing about him, he always thought it was supposed to go in the hole. No matter where he was, he thought the ball was supposed to go. I wish I had that positive attitude, you know. <laughs> well, you know, um, he, he was a – obviously a, a great athlete but um you know you and chippy did the same thing when y'all were in y'all were in high school you played everything you could play yeah and um 
you know, it, it makes a difference. You know, you um, looked up uh, the uh, your, your dad's graduating class of 1947. Um, they only had 26 people in that class. And, and so, you know, you're talking about classes of 30 or whatever. You couldn't have had more than 60 boys hardly in, in the top four grades at school. It, it was import- it's always been important for, for guys to, to play all sports. But if you got somebody who's a really good athlete like that and uh, you only got, um, I think uh, the 46 team had like 26 players on it. You know, if you got somebody that can do multiple things like he could do, Man, it's it's just something. It's what makes good football teams when you don't have a lot of players. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know. Um, yeah, when we were coming along, you too. The, you know, you pretty much, if you had some ability, you played just about everything. You know, because they needed you. You know, we just didn't have that many guys that um, could play, and I'm sure it was even tougher back then because uh, just the small numbers that they had. Yeah. I remember, I can remember you in the springtime one year. It seems like you're playing baseball, running track, and playing golf kind of like all at the same time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's pretty hard to do. I know. I was um, uh, running track. We'd go, yeah, we'd run track before baseball practice. And I can remember going under the stands and maybe uh, losing my lunch uh, a couple times. <laughs> After, after running track and doing all that and then going to baseball practice. and uh, But I always enjoyed baseball. Baseball is just a fun game. And I enjoyed basketball, too. I'm just glad I got to play all the sports and give them all a try because uh, I don't know about these. A lot of kids now, they, they specialize in one sport at a very early age. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing, but uh, I, I really enjoyed getting to play all of them. Let me let me say this before we close. Um, you know, I I got the the opportunity to um, well put it this way. I, I watched Chippy play. You know, back in the back in the sixties, I got to play uh, with you. We were on some of the same teams at, at Miller. I got to coach um, four of Scotty Burns' grandchildren. Um, mm-hmm. Scott, who was Chippy's son, who who played defensive line for us in the in the early 90s, uh, Bradley and, and Patrick, your sons, who played in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And then I also got to coach your daughter, Erin, in softball. Right. And and so let me just say that if if Scotty Byrne had had more grandchildren, I think we'd have won more games. <laughs> but the, the, the one thing that stood out about all of those and, and all of y'all playing was the great uh, competitiveness um, every day? What was practice or game? You never saw anybody whose last name was Burn that didn't give everything they had. I can remember um, Scott. Uh, he was a, a young. We were trying to make a defensive lineman out of him because he had pretty good height. And um, and and I can remember when he was younger, putting a an older, better guy on him, and the guy would just whip him in like a one on one thing and. Scott would just be just beside himself that he allowed that to happen. Just, 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 just mad, just furious at himself. And I saw the same thing like out of Aaron when she would strike out in softball and that look of total disgust on her face that she could not believe that she just struck out. 
the, all the birds seem to have that. And yeah. uh, it, it makes for, for great competitiveness and really good teams when you got people like that. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> that, that means a lot because I, I think you're exactly right. We all hated to lose. I, I just, you know, hated to lose. You know, people uh, say whether it's better to love to win or hate to lose. I just hated to lose. Yeah. <laughs> The rest of them did too. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, Brad, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and coming on, talking about your dad, who uh, is one of the, the, the great people in around the, the, the Bruton area. And uh, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you. I appreciate your kind words and for remembering him um, because, yeah, he, 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 he loved Bruton. He loved T.R. Muller. And, uh, he loved he loved his sports, so I, I really thank you for this opportunity. And we appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. This has been a minute with Coach Riggs uh, honoring the 1946 T.R. Miller football team, the number 10 team of all time. Till next time. Thanks.